Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Hebrews chapter 4, right around verse 11 is where we're going to be in just a few minutes. I think it's probably good to just go ahead and acknowledge we all love early service on Time Change Sunday, right? I love the godly and the faithful people that come out no matter what, so I'm glad you're here. Uh, The good thing about Tri-Cities is if you show up a little bit drowsy to church, the supernova lights in the foyer will wake you up So when you come in. So just want you to know that. Nick, that's for you, so appreciate that. Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to dig in verse 11 through 13 this morning as we continue to talk about Jesus is the better rest and what that means and what that looks like in our lives this morning. So a few years ago, someone invited me to participate in the Crazy 8 race in Kingsport. Any Crazy 8 runners here that have done that before? Well, a few of you crazy people, not a lot of you. So I gave in and I participated. If you don't know what the crazy eight is, it's an 8K road race. That's five miles through the streets of Kingsport. Now, I'm not a big runner. I mean, I enjoy running. I like running, you know, maybe a mile or two around my neighborhood. So five miles was a big stretch. And I can remember when I first ran this race, coming around, you're like a third of the way through the race, You make the turn onto Fort Henry Drive, and it looks like it's forever just to get down Fort Henry Drive. And I'm like a third of the way through. And I can remember distinctly thinking to myself, I'm not going to make it. (laughs) I'm not so sure I'm going to finish this race. And the difference maker, I remember distinctly, is when you're running the race, the Crazy 8 race, one of the gifts... And, and one of the great things is that your, your path is, lo- is lined with very loud, very encouraging people who are cheering you on and they're saying, don't quit. Keep going. Keep running. It's worth it. Finish well. I mean, if you've ever run a race, you know how empowering that is to have those come alongside of you and encourage and say, run hard, finish strong, finish well. So I say all that just to get us back into the mindset of the book of Hebrews. Uh, The book of Hebrews is written, it's a letter. The author of Hebrews is, is writing to this Hebrew community, this Hebrew faith community in the first century, and primarily from the beginning to end, he is saying, run the race of faith in Jesus, finish well. He says things like Hebrews 12, 1, run with endurance the race that is set before you, this race of faith that is set before every one of us as followers of Jesus. He says in Hebrews 10, let us hold fast this confession of our hope without wavering. For he, Jesus, who promised is faithful. Run well. Run well. Hebrews 10, 36, for you have need of endurance, he says, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Run well. Run with endurance. Hang in there. Continue in this race of faith. 
See, what we know about the letter of Hebrews is it was written again to this Hebrew faith community. And some in this community, they were running well the the race of faith. Some in this Hebrew community were, were struggling in this race of faith because now naming the name of Jesus in their context was costing them something. It was becoming costly, and they had to weigh, is this thing worth it? And the author of Hebrews comes alongside and says, run well, fix your eyes on Jesus, finish strong. We also know that there were some in this faith community or who were a part of this group, but they had not yet entered the race of faith. They knew the message of the gospel. They had heard the truth over and over and over again, but they were not yet sure that Jesus was worth it. They had not yet surrendered their lives to the message of who Jesus was, and the message is the same. Come to faith. Consider Jesus. Run the race. So that's a little bit of a reminder of the context of the book of Hebrews to this faith community. Now, over the past few weeks and months, Pastor Paul and Pastor Daniel have been walking us through chapter 3 and 4 of Hebrews. And the big main theme pulling us through Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 is this, that Jesus Christ is the better rest. Jesus is the better rest. There's a promise given in these verses. It's in chapter 4, verse 1. It's in other places. That by faith in Christ, in his finished work, there is this rest of God. There is a promise of rest here. First, uh, 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. There's a promise. Of the rest of God. Now we've defined this over the past few weeks. You can go back and listen to some of the previous messages. But this is the rest of soul. The rest of our soul that is possible only through Jesus and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection. This rightness with God. This well-being. This wholeness. This forgiveness. This satisfaction. This joy that is found in the person of Jesus and Jesus alone. And we've been looking at that the last few weeks. The Hebrews refers refers to it as this rest of God. It's not a nap, Pastor Daniel said. It's a place of complete satisfaction in Christ. It's not just another well that you can run to for soul satisfaction. He is the well, the living stream of God. So there's this invitation in chapter 3 and 4 to this group to come by faith, faith alone, know this rest of God. And that's the, that's the theme of Hebrews 3 and 4. Jesus articulates it himself this way in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. I love where he says this. You will find rest for your soul. So over and over, the writer of Hebrews is saying there's rest in Jesus. And this rest is only accessed 
and available through faith. You don't work your way into rest. You don't earn your way into rest. You, by faith, trust in Jesus and his completely accomplished death on the cross, burial and resurrection, and by faith, rest. Hebrews 4.3, for we who have believed enter into that rest, he says. Now, as the author of Hebrews is presenting this, there's this constant tension that you have to feel as you're reading through these chapters. The writer of Hebrews clearly holds out strong encouragement of this rest that is possible in Christ and at the same time there's this stern warning uh, to avoid and be aware of unbelief. Be aware of this reality that is in the heart of every human when we are born, this thing called unbelief. He says this over and over, chapter 3 verse 12. Beware, he says, Beware, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. It's a stern, sobering warning to them and to us. He says it another way. He says this in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. There's this dynamic, this tension at play. Yes, by faith and faith alone, the rest of God is accessible. But beware, your natural tendency, my natural tendency because of sin is unbelief. It's unbelief. Now, let me just make this painfully practical for all of us a little bit this morning. Some of you are here in this room this morning, and I say this out of great love and concern, and you are on the outside looking in to the rest of God, to salvation, to forgiveness, to being a child of God. You're on the outside looking in, not because you haven't heard the truth, not because you haven't been exposed to the truth, but you've refused to, by faith, trust in what God has declared to be true. That's unbelief. Now watch. Some of you are ready to excuse yourself from this whole text because you're saying, well, I'm a believer. I don't have to worry about unbelief. Listen, I want you to notice something. Some of you here are here as believers, and the residue of unbelief that remains in our hearts, you are making major decisions in your life right now, child of God. You are determining the direction of your life. You're making decisions about relationships and finance and future, and you're making those decisions from a place of unbelief rather than based on on the promises of God. Unbelief's a serious thing. So the writer of Hebrews over and over and over says, beware, let us fear, realize that your tendency so often is to doubt the promises of God, to not be trusting his revelation in what he said. 
So then we come to chapter 4, verse 11, where we're going to be this morning. And he kind of wraps up this whole section about the rest of God and watching out for unbelief and running in faith. And he comes to chapter 4, verse 11. I'm going to read these few verses. This is where we're going to be this morning and try to make some application to our lives, okay? Verse 11. Let us, therefore... So with all that I've tried to summarize and all that the author of Hebrews has said up to this point, he says, okay, let me me bring it home here. This is like the summation of his sermon in a sense. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. We'll talk about that. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's making reference to the Old Testament illustrations that we looked at over the past few weeks. We'll talk about that in a minute. He says there, there is a striving to enter that rest. What does that mean? We'll talk about that. Verse 12. For, here's the basis of his argument. For the word of God is living and active. We'll talk about this argument, but I just want you to hear a little bit of why he says this. He's saying, why would you ever spurn the revelation and the word of God? Why would you ever in your life trust your own way and what you can see and what makes sense to you over God's revelation that he has given to us? He says, why would you do that? Strive to enter the rest that's made known to us through God's revelation. Why would you doubt God's word? Verse 12, the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And it's able to discern, to judge, to, to, to divide between The thoughts and intentions of the human heart. Verse 13, and in a heavy word of warning, he says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we have to give an account. So here's a big truth that comes out of this passage, and I'm going to give you some big ideas this morning. It's this, is Jesus is the all-seeing judge. We've seen that Jesus is the revelation. We've seen that Jesus is the better revelation. He's the the better rest. This morning we'll see that he, through his word, his revelation, is the all-seeing judge. Now, let me try to bring all this home to you. If you've been reading through Hebrews and you've been part of this series over the last few weeks and months in 2023, you know Hebrews can be a challenging book. Hebrews was a letter that was written to a people who lived 2,000 years ago. Different culture, different place, different time. It's the inspired word of God, but the context was slightly different than ours. And also, the writer of Hebrews uses a ton of illustrations written to a people 2,000 years ago about things that happened 3,700 years ago. So there can be almost a a challenge to figure out why he's saying the things he's saying here. But we believe that all Scripture is 
profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So here's the point. Even though it was written to a group 2,000 years ago, it's living and active, and here's the same. The goal is the same, that we enter God's rest. Same to the people 2,000 years ago, same to us today, that we by faith, this section here, the goal particularly is that we by faith enter God's rest. Now, I said it earlier, but I want you to understand this. The author of Hebrews knows that the enemy to that is this thing called unbelief. So over and over and over he says, beware of unbelief. Be, fear, be fearful of this unbelief that resides in us. Be aware of our tendency to walk in unbelief instead of trusting God's promises, trusting God's revelation. The reality for you and me is that sin has hardwired us toward unbelief. Now, again, you're saying, but Pastor Mike, I, I'm a believer. I, I'm a Christian. Why, why does this apply to me? Listen, unbelief, you can, you can think of it this way. It's not always the outright denial that God exists, but unbelief is a denial that he matters supremely. Unbelief is not an outright denial of the word of God. In other words, I'm not saying, is this talking to atheists who want to reject the Word of God? No, not necessarily. It's talking to those who would claim to know the Word of God, have heard the Word of God, heard the revelation of God. It's not an outright denial of the Word of God, but it is a rejection of the all-sufficiency and complete authority of God's Word. And practically what that means in our lives and my lives and your lives often is unbelief simply shrugs at God and at his revelation that he has given to us. That can be unbelief. In the life of a believer, it can be the residue of unbelief that greatly impedes our worship, our joy, our fruitfulness, and our trust. That's why the Bible says things like, I believe, help my unbelief. That's why Hebrews 12, will be there in a few months from now, says, let us run with endurance the race that's set up before us. I quoted that earlier. And let us lay aside every encumbrance, listen, and the sin that so easily entangles us. Definite article, the sin. You know what the sin is coming out, of, coming out of chapter 11 of Hebrews, which is all about faith, the hall of faith, the walk of faith. The sin that so easily entangles us is unbelief. It's unbelief. So for us this morning, how do we wrestle? How do we strive, verse 11? Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that none may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What is the disobedience that's referred to here in verse 11? And what does it mean to strive? Let's see if we can figure that out. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. He says, so that we, speaking to the group then, speaking to us now, will not fall or commit or enter into the same sort, the same type of disobedience that they did. Now, we spent some time on this the last few weeks. Pastor Daniel did. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. 
But, but what is the disobedience that he's referring to? What is the reference here in Hebrews 4.11? Well, if you remember, it's the account of the children of Israel who have come out of Egypt. God has delivered them by an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. They're making their way through the wilderness, and they're on their way to the land of promise. It's called the promised land, meaning it's there. It's, it's, it's this thing God has promised you. It is as sure for the people of Israel as they walk in the promise of God. And as they're making their way through the wilderness, if you remember, they get to the edge of the promised land. God has declared by his revelation, this land is yours. Go, take it by faith. And the Bible says they refused to trust God because their eye and their senses and what they saw and what they felt said, man, those giants in that land are big. And then those obstacles in that land that you have promised are really going to be difficult to overcome. I'm not sure we can do it. And they said, we'd rather go back to Egypt. We'd rather retreat. And the Bible says they failed to enter into the place of God's promise because of unbelief. The disobedience here was not rejecting God that he existed But they were saying, in effect, by rejecting his revelation, he's not ultimately supreme. They were saying by denying his word, they were saying this, that yes, oh, we may hold to the word of God, but we do not see it as all sufficient and completely authoritative in our lives. Listen, beloved, he says, beware that we don't fall by the same sort of disobedience You can sum it up like this, which is really practical for me, and I think it is for you. They knew what God said. They knew the revelation of God. But in their unbelief, they chose to trust their own understanding, what their own eyes could see, what made sense to them, and said, we're going to lean on our own understanding instead of trusting in God. You and I live there. You and I wrestle with that. So then why does the author of Hebrews say, then strive? Strive to what, verse 11? Strive to enter that rest. What does the word strive here mean? Because it's incredibly practical to you and me every day of our lives of walking with Jesus. He says strive. The word strive means uh, there's a sense of not delay. There's a sense of urgency to it. Strive has the sense of earnestness or diligence. It has a sense of concentrating one's energies to, to endeavor to do something. What do you mean strive that we enter this rest? Well, listen really carefully. It does not mean that striving earns God's rest. And all God's people said amen. This is not a call to work harder, do more, try harder, and God will applaud you at the finish line for your efforts. That's not the striving. God's rest is available through faith in the finished work of Jesus only. And all God's people again said amen. I want you to hear that really clearly. Then what's the striving? 
Striving does mean in this context of God's revelation and him entrusting his promises and him giving his word to his people then and giving his word to his people now, it does mean that we make every effort to appropriate the means of entering God's rest. That is, we make every effort to diligently place in our lives and know and study and submit to and honor the revelation that God has given to us because faith comes by hearing. And hearing the word of God. To, to try to make this as simple as I can, John Piper says it this way it was very helpful to me. Life in Christ, life of a believer, is characterized by a diligent pursuit and use of God's word daily in our lives. This is what we strive to bring into our lives as that, as that which energizes and awakens us and strengthens us. It's the revelation of God full of his promises. Strive to make use, to honor God's revelation that has been entrusted to us. See, that's what they failed to do. They were on the verge of the promised land and they just spurned God's promises and they spurned God's character and they said, no, we're going to trust our own way. And it was blatant unbelief. Unbelief shrugs at God and spurns His revelation. And again, to make this painfully practical to all of us, some of us right now in our lives are making decisions about relationships and finances and future. And you're making those decisions just like the children of Israel on the, on the verge of the promised land by what you can see, what makes sense to you, rather than, rather than pursuing what God says and resting in his promises that have been revealed to you. See that? So the author continues on, and this is where it just continues to get more practical. Verse 11, he says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. I'm going to give you four big ideas if we have time really quick. Here we go. Big idea number one, we strive toward rest. Not an earning striving, not a meritorious striving, but a striving to appropriate God's revelation, His Word, Yield and honor his word in our lives. Then in a sense of an argument, the author of Hebrews continues the argument and he says, okay, if you're wondering why you would strive to submit to God's word and to honor his revelation, why would we do that? Verse 12. Why would we strive to know God's word and trust God's word and depend on his revelation and obey his revelation and yield to what he has promised and what he has said. Verse 12, here's your answer. For the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, when he says here the word of God, it's really important because you read verse 12 and then you get down to verse 13 and verse 12 seems to be talking about the written word, the, the revelation of God. And then you get to verse 13 and it seems to be talking about a person, God's incarnate revelation. Is he talking about the written word or the living word? Yes. And this is huge for you and I. Listen to what Albert Moeller says. I think this is so important. 
The author uses the phrase to point to the entirety of divine revelation, both written and incarnate. The written word, our Bibles, the incarnate word, Jesus himself. Regrettably, many Christians try to divorce the Bible from Jesus. Christ cannot be divorced from Scripture. Our knowledge of Jesus as the divine Son of God and his accomplishments for us only come through the Word of God. Amen? Meaning, the statement that I hear and you hear from time to time is, I'm, man, I'm in love with Jesus, I'm pursuing Jesus, I'm going hard after Jesus. Tell me about what place you're giving God's Word in your life. Well, it's just not that important to me. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. The Word of God, verse 12, God's written revelation that we have, speaking also of His incarnate revelation, the Son of God is living and active. Here's your big idea, number two. Why pursue the Word? Because the Word is living and active. What does that mean? The Word of God is living. It is active. The author here speaks to the the nature of God's Word, His revelation, and the activity of His Word. This is huge for you and me. For the Word of God is living. What does that mean? Now, we could spend a whole day about this. I'm not going to. This is really quick. You could study this on your own. But to say that the Word, what has come from the mouth of God, His revelation, is living, is to say what God speaks is alive because it comes from the mouth of the living God. It is to say God is so alive that, when, that, that what He speaks is living. We can't even relate to that. I said something yesterday. Nobody will ever remember half of what I said yesterday or care, right? Our words fall to the ground. But God is so alive, what he speaks lives on. It is alive. It is living and active. Matthew 4.4, Jesus makes reference to this. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The living revelation given to us, this record we have of God's revelation, we call our Bibles. Psalm 119, verse 25, my soul cleaves to the dust. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like, man, I just don't know if I can make it today. My soul feels so weary. I'm so spiritually exhausted. What should I do? Maybe I need a vacation. Maybe you do need a vacation. But here's what the psalmist says. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Spiritual exhaustion and spiritual fatigue in this place of wandering and wherever you may find yourself, the energy to continue and the energy that gives you life is by appropriating the Word of God into your life. Be diligent to pursue Him in His Word. The Word of God is living and it's active. Really quick, what does it mean that it's active? The word here is in ergo. We get the word energy from it. It means it it carries out what it was intended to do. God's Word has a power to effect what it promises. In other words, as a believer with the Spirit of God living inside of you, every command of God in His written Word has in it, by the power of the Spirit in you, to carry out what you're commanded to do. Did you get that? 
In other words, as a believer, all the commands of God are given in his word. And the word itself, through the spirit, has the power to give life and to energize the very promise in that word. It's living and it's active. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. Listen, this is incredible. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bring forth fruit and sprout, giving seed to the sower, Isaiah says, just like the rain comes down from heaven and in that rain is the power for growth and the seeds sprout and the trees grow. Isaiah says, so shall the word of God be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish what I, pur- what I purpose, and it shall succeed in the things for which I send it. The word of God has energy. It is living. It is active. One of the reasons as a church we commit ourselves to the teaching and preaching through Scripture, verse by verse through Scripture, sometimes in the preaching of God's Word and we hear the Word of God, man, it falls on you immediately. It's like rain and it hits us and He says, yes, Lord, I hear your Word. And sometimes it's like snow, which means over time the drip, 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 drip of that water gradually transforms our lives over time. But here's what we can rest assured that the teaching and preaching and reading and studying and meditating and praying of God's Word is never a vain, empty pursuit. It will always, in one way or another, accomplish the purpose for which it was sent forth. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, strive to know and obey and trust and live out of this revelation of God that's been entrusted to you. It's active. Why do we strive for the word of God is living and active. Keep going, verse 12. Sharper than any two-edged sword. The idea of a two-edged sword in that day, was, uh, it was something that could expose. It was a sharp instrument. That's your next big idea. The word exposes us. The word has the capacity to reveal reality when we choose to deceive ourselves. When we're walking in the deception of trusting me instead of trusting God's word. We, we, we all choose to walk in the dark at times. The Word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword. It is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. We all need a dose of reality. We need the truth to cut through the lies that we're living in. Sometimes that's painful. Sometimes that's not always in the moment fun. Sharper than any two-edged sword. There's a precision to God's word. Piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. Now, if you read different commentators, some want to debate, well, what does he mean, joints and marrow and soul and spirit? And and what does all this mean? I I think it's much more general than that. I, I agree with this commentator who says these phrases are not meant to be defined as the physiological and psychological composition of humanity, but to graphically picture the depth of our being to which the Word of God penetrates. Listen, beloved, you and I all have an incredible capacity for self-deception. You know, I have an incredible capacity to believe my own understanding, and there is nothing 
in the world that has the power like a two-edged sword and the precision of God's word to be open and read and prayed and meditated on, to listen, to listen to, to get into our hearts that can divide between the error that we're believing and what reality and truth really is. Nothing can do that like God's word. For you as a disciple of Jesus, there is no replacement to a regular diet and giving place to God's word in your life. And let me just say this, as disciple makers called to add and expand and restore into the lives of those around you, there is no substitute to adding and expanding and restoring in someone else's life what God says. Amen? It's living. It's active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It's incredible here that the, the Word of God has the, the capacity to, to expose. There's an incredible dynamic here. The Word of God has the capacity to expose the fakes. The Word of God has the capacity to encourage the faithful. So you can read this and know this is somewhat of a, a trembling issue about the Word of God. Nothing is hidden from the Word of God. It exposes the fakes, exposes the falsehoods. But listen, as a believer in the child of God, understand that daily you battle between what is true in your life and what is false in your life. There are patterns and habits and struggles that you are wrestling with on a day-in and day-out basis. And you know what it often is? There is the residue of lies that you brought into your life. There's the baggage maybe from the past, whatever it is, and those lies are buried so deep down in your mind, nothing will penetrate and expose those lies except the Word of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says that we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, meaning you and I hold these little pockets of lies, these little pockets of untruth that affect our identity, they affect our joy, they affect our boldness, they affect how we see ourselves, they affect how you see the world, they affect how you live your lives, and it's truth and lies. And the Bible is the only thing that can pierce deep enough to destroy those speculations and every lofty thing, Paul says, we are taking captive everything to the obedience of Jesus under the authority of the truth of his word. That's the Christian life, by the way. The word of God exposes us like a sharp two-edged sword piercing to the place in us that only God's living word can do. So as you hear this message this morning, and we're, we're about to close up. I've got just one more point I want to cover. I, I hope you're wrestling with what is your personal attitude toward God's revealed word? See, the message of the author of Hebrews back in verse 11 over and over again is to strive for something. And the striving is to appropriate and know and live and honor and cherish the revelation that he's given to us. Then he comes to verse 13 and he closes with this incredible statement. He says, and there's no creature hidden from his sight. Say, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about the written Bible. Now he starts talking about a hymn. Who's he talking about? Remember, is the word of God here the written word or the incarnate word? Yes. Now he says, in the same way, as you respond, this is big, 
as you respond and honor and submit to the written revelation, you are equally responding to the living revelation who is Jesus himself. Don't think we can live Christian lives and we push our Bibles over to the side and we spurn God's word and somehow deceive ourselves to think that we are worshiping and honoring Jesus. It doesn't work that way. Verse 13, he says, and there's no creature hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. The word exposed here, the word naked here is a couple different meanings in that culture and how they would have understood it. One is it was an athletic term. It's pretty graphic. That it being exposed, it was a, it was a wrestling term, a, an idea of one wrestler who could, who could pin another wrestler in such a position to have literally his hand around his throat where he could not move and could not speak. In other words, no defense. See, there's no defense to having the revelation of God entrusted to us and choosing to say, well, you know what? My thoughts were really superior to God's thoughts. (laughs) I know what God said about this relationship, but I really think I've got God on this one. I know what the Bible proclaims about my hopelessness and sin And that Jesus is the only means by which I can be made right with God. But you know what? I think I figured this one out. Hebrews 4.13 says, in the end, you will have no defense. If we spurn what God has revealed in his word and the hope of his word, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. Final big idea, we will give an account to the Lord. And to be very clear, to those who have spurned and disregarded God's revelation and they've rejected the gospel, there will be a standing before this revelation that you've spurned. You will stand before his very face and you will have no defense. To those who know Christ, we will stand before him, but we will stand before him, yes, as our judge and at the same time as our redeemer and our savior. And our hope will not be in our accomplishments, but in what he has accomplished. Hallelujah, what a savior. But we will all stand before the Lord. And with all this said, as the team just comes up and begins to play, the writer goes back again to verse 11 and he says, okay, this is why. This is why we are to strive to enter that rest, to appropriate his word, to cherish and to know and to obey the revelation that God has entrusted to us. The word is living, it is active, the word exposes us, and yes, the revelation that has been entrusted to us, we will stand before him one day and all things will be open and laid bare. Final thought for you is this. What is your attitude toward God's word? I couldn't help thinking this account really quick and I'll close and I'll pray. When I was in seminary many moons ago, my discipler, and I've shared this story before, but it so came to my mind, my discipler was 
a man named Clyde Cranford, and he had a ministry to seminary students, and he just pulled our, these young guys aside and invested in them the Word of God. And you may remember, I, I'll never forget, he used his Bible. That was basically the book he used to disciple us. And on the front of his Bible, right down here in the corner, it didn't say Clyde Cranford. It had one word, and it was the word tremble. Tremble. If you know your Bibles, you know Clyde got that from a passage in the book of Isaiah that says this. I'll close. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says, For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word trembles at my word. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you for the gift of your revelation. I thank you for the truths and the promises that you have entrusted to us. Father, I pray this morning we will be people. Lord, we are well aware of our tendency to unbelief. And God, let us be people who tremble at the promises and the truths of your Jesus' sake we pray.